All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20, the topic. With a parable, Jesus teaches that it is what is in the heart that defiles a man. The title of our message, Heart in Mouth Disease. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're anxious to get into your word because in it we have Jesus uh, revealed to us, Lord, from glory to glory, image by image. I pray that uh, this text would be no different. We would understand why it was written, who it was written to, uh, its an initial context and application, but that it would have strong application to our lives as well here in the 21st century as believers who desire to walk with you. And Lord, for anybody here that's not a Christian, that this would be the text and that this would be the day that they give their life to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You might want to rethink your after-church lunch plans after I tell you this. You've seen the mandated signs in restaurant restrooms saying employees must wash hands before returning to work. Well, you know what I'm going to say. It's not that bad. It's just, it's just that according to the FDA, more than half of all the employees in the fast food industry fail to wash their hands properly. Other estimates are as high as 62%. Nearly two-thirds of restaurant workers who handle raw beef aren't washing their hands afterwards. Employees serving ready-to-eat food at farmer's markets rarely wash their hands. Now, in our verses, a delegation of religious leaders accused Jesus' disciples of failing to wash their hands before eating. Before you say, ew, gross, you need to understand that the type of hand washing in question had nothing to do with their personal hygiene. They were describing a ritual hand washing that was supposed to have a spiritual value. Jesus will uh, use their accusation to expose the delegation as hypocrites who put the traditions of men above the commandments of God to the spiritual detriment of themselves and of their followers. The traditions of men mask what Jesus wishes to unmask, a defiled heart that needs transformation. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the traditions of men mask your defiled heart. Number two, the commandments of God unmask your defiled heart. Verses 1 through 11, let's look at the traditions of men uh, as Jesus understood them. From the time Moses was given the law of God, the Jews began to interpret it to try to apply it in every conceivable situation. These interpretations were passed down both orally and in written form. By the first century, there were literally thousands of burdensome rules and rituals, many of which, as we'll see, contradicted the very law of God they were seeking to clarify. These interpretations are what Jesus called the traditions of men, and one of them was ritual hand-washing. And so let's get into it in verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. Now, we've been pointing out that Jesus was being rejected by Israel's leaders. Because of it, he would return to heaven to await his second coming. We live in that time between his two comings, and we are now his messengers going out into the whole world with the gospel. It's significant that these scribes and Pharisees were from Jerusalem. They seemed to be an official delegation sent to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. These were the big guns. The local uh, scribes and Pharisees hadn't had much luck in undermining Jesus' credibility, and so they, they uh, sent for the big guns. Uh, verse 2 goes on, and it says, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread? 
Now, it's likely that the disciples did wash their hands for hygiene before eating. The scribes and the Pharisees were talking about a very particular ritual hand washing that had nothing to do with hygiene. In fact, your hands needed to be clean before you could observe the rite of ritual hand washing. Listen to one description of the ritual that I came across. The method of washing is by pouring one half pint of water over both hands from a receptacle with a wide mouth, the lip of which must be undamaged. The water should be poured over the whole hand up to the wrist, but it is effective as long as the fingers are washed up to the second joint. The hands must be clean and without anything adhering to them. Rings must be removed so that the water can reach the entire surface area. The water should not be hot or discolored, which, so we couldn't do this at all here. Uh, And it is customary to perform the act by pouring water over each hand three times. Care must be taken that the unwashed hands do not touch the water used for the washing. After washing, lift your hands chest high and say the following blessing if you intend to eat more than two ounces of bread. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of the hands. Rub your hands together and then dry them. Be careful not to speak or get involved in anything else unless you've recited the blessing on your bread and swallowed a portion too. This ritual washing was performed to correct what the Jews considered impurity, uh, such as coming into contact with Gentiles or having been out in the marketplace. Such activities, they said, rendered you unclean with respect to worshiping God. And so you needed to go through a ritual cleansing. Since Jesus and his boys were ministering to all sorts of unclean people, rubbing elbows and hands with them, tradition demanded that they ought to be washing their hands quite often. It's interesting to note in passing that Jesus' disciples no longer engaged in ritual hand washing. You know, we're quick to point out when these guys did things that were wrong, they were kind of knuckleheads. In fact, in a few verses, Jesus is going to upbraid them a little bit for not understanding something. Uh, We also want to point out when they were getting it, and they they were getting liberty in Christ because they, they were being accused of something they were no longer doing. They evidently felt the freedom to move away from these traditions of men. Now, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now, when you asked Jesus a question, especially one that was really an accusation, you were in the intellectual big leagues and you were out of your league. And these guys, I'm sure, these, you know, their brain trust got together and they, this, this was the question that was going to really do it that was going to totally discredit Jesus Christ. This one question, this was it. This was the end of the debate. This is like, you know, that time when, what's his name? I can't ever remember his name, but he looked at, at Dan Quayle and he said, I knew John Kennedy and you're no John Kennedy. That was it. It was over as far as I, Dan Quayle might have just have left. You know, the debate was over. Uh, and, and so these guys, this is it. We're going to ask this question and watch Jesus squirm. Well, Jesus answered their question indirectly but insightfully. They were talking tradition of the elders. He was talking the commandments of God. Commandments always trump traditions. Jesus provided an example of how a tradition of the elders was allowing and even encouraging people to sin. And so he says in verse 4, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say... Whoever says to his father or mother, 
whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. The fourth commandment given to Moses on Mount Sinai was to honor your father and mother. Later in the law, in the book of Exodus, the Jews were instructed to uphold the fourth commandment to the point of being allowed to put to death anyone who disrespected his father or mother. A big part of honoring father and mother in the Jewish culture was caring for them in their old age. (coughs) Gene, Uh, it obviously... (laughs) I'm sorry, did uh, you all hear that? Obviously, it was subliminal. I am Mr. Subliminal. It obviously put a physical and financial burden on the children, but it ought to be a blessed burden to bear to take care of your elders. The Jews, however, started looking for a loophole. They started looking for a way to keep their property and possessions without having to care for their elderly parents or parent, but without technically violating the fourth commandment. Some rabbi eventually suggested that you make an oath declaring your property and possessions were dedicated to God. It was referred to as korban, which is the translation of the word a gift. Here's how it got around the obligation to care for your parents. The laws governing oaths were such that you could not really renege on an oath. So if you said, whatever support I might have given to my aging parents is korban, then it was dedicated to God and you were free from your obligations to use it for your parents. Because after all, you had vowed to give it to God, so how could you give it to your parents when now it belonged to God? You had to keep your vow. In other words, it elevated a general principle in the law regarding oaths to a position higher than the fourth commandment. Their tradition was that oaths could trump commandments. That was how they got around the fourth commandment. The catch, however, was that you need not really give your property and possessions to God. You retained full ownership and use of them. You only had to say that you dedicated them to God. This devious interpretation of laws regarding honoring parents and oaths was simply a ruse that allowed you to break God's commandment. It elevated the traditions of men above the word of God. We would say, of course, that it was just wicked. Now, verse 7 says, uh, Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah was addressing Jews in his own time, but what he said applied equally well to the Jews of Jesus' time. Hypocrite, as you know, derives from the Greek stage. Actors portrayed their parts by wearing masks. Hypocrite means from behind the mask, and it has come to have a decidedly negative connotation about a person just being phony. Verse 10, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. We're going to find out this is a short parable. Jesus is going to explain what he meant in a minute, but we already understand what he meant, that the heart of every man is defiled. It is full of all manner of wickedness. And by heart, we mean the inner person, the real you, our mind, our will, and our emotions. The traditions of men, when they contradict the word of God, mask a defiled heart. 
The religious leaders were not just allowing people to keep their property and possessions. They were telling them that it was spiritual to do so. They were making them feel good about breaking God's law to honor father and mother by keeping, in a sense, God's command to honor your vow. But you and I see right through this. You don't want to mask your defiled heart with some religious tradition that tells you that you're okay. That's exactly the kind of thing that keeps a person on the broad road that leads them to eternal destruction. Any religion that suggests you can somehow work your way to heaven by doing good deeds or by participating in ceremonies or sacraments that contribute to your salvation is a hypocritical mask of your defiled heart. You want God's commandments to expose your defiled heart so that your heart can be transformed. And that's what Jesus gets into in verses 12 through 20. He points out that the commandments of God unmask your defiled heart. Billy Graham likes to say the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. There's just something wrong with us and we know it. Religion, philosophy, and to some extent the social sciences, all of these are man's attempts to discover and then try to make right what is wrong with us. What is wrong with us is that we inherit a sin nature from Adam and Eve. We are defiled from within and cannot hope to reform our hearts. Our hearts must be transformed in an encounter with Jesus Christ. And so verse 12, then his disciples came to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I'm not sure what motivated this question or where they're coming from. It could come from either a positive or a negative perspective on the scribes and Pharisees. The disciples could have been saying, wow, Jesus, you sure told those guys. I mean, because that's, that's, that's how we feel about it, right? Man, he really put those guys in their place. Or they might be a little bit concerned that the Lord had offended an official delegation from Jerusalem, thinking that, hey, Jerusalem is taking notice of you. Maybe you should play nice with those guys and we'd get farther. Whatever their motive, it tells us that there will be times that God's truth offends. If we offend, let's be sure it's the word of God doing the offending and not our personalities. After all, we want men to hear the gospel and be saved. There's an old word you hardly ever hear anymore. It's the word winsome. W-I-N-S-O-M-E. How many of you use that on a regular basis? Uh, some of you raise your hand because you've heard the word. You're intellectually superior to the others, but very rarely do, does it get used. Maybe on Downton Abbey, I think they're probably saying it every other, every other word. How very winsome of you. But uh, it means a generally pleasing and engaging, often because of childlike charm and innocence. It's a person like myself. Well, childlike, anyway. Now, we could put it in one of those word plays that people seem to love so much when they're on Facebook. We could say, be winsome in order to win some for Christ. <laughs> now, see, if Greg Laurie said that, you'd be retweeting that. Oh, man, Greg Laurie. <laughs> You've got to read Greg's devotion this morning. But when Pastor Gene says that, he's an idiot. Verse 13, let's just move on before I... Let me see what you're saying on Twitter right now. Is this trending? <laughs> Jesus had... Oh, wait, verse 13. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. 
Jesus had previously told a parable about an enemy sowing tares among the wheat. He interpreted it as non-believers growing alongside believers uh, during this in-between time who would, at his second coming, be separated from them and be cast into hell. The scribes and the Pharisees Jesus was dealing with were tares among the wheat. Not all of them. We remember Nicodemus, for example. But certainly this delegation and most of the rest of them that we encounter in the New Testament were tares among the wheat. Being part of a powerful majority doesn't make you right. Being right according to God's word is what makes you right. Verse 14, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. The scribes and the Pharisees considered themselves spiritual guides to the spiritually blind. It was actually a description they either used of themselves or that they were understood to be like the guides of the spiritual blind. So uh, Jesus is saying they themselves were spiritually blind and their leadership could only result in a path to the pit. Jesus said, let them alone. These are terrifying words to come from the lips of the one who loved the world of men so much that he came to die for their sins. He's looking at these men at that time saying, let them alone, leave them alone. We're not going to talk to them anymore about these things. Uh, And you know, sometimes it is God's judgment to leave a person to experience the consequences of their own refusal to believe. If a person, you know, God is always striving and his desire is that none should perish but all should come to eternal life. But sometimes people, they just say no to God and they shake their fist at God, they go their own way and God says, well then I'm going to let you reap the consequences of what you're sowing. Uh, and, and those of us who have sinned in significant ways, either before we became Christians or after, uh, you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, there's that certain freedom that you feel, you know, and stuff, and then your sin catches up with you. Uh, and, and you end up um, in a bad way calling out to the Lord. And thank goodness, thank the Lord that by his grace he hears at that moment. Uh, verse 15, then Peter uh, answered and said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus' answer is in such a way that we understand the parable is the comments regarding what goes into versus what comes out of the mouth of a man. Verse 16, so Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Not really what you want to hear from Jesus. They ought to have been a little more perceptive by now or so Jesus thought. It's a good question to ask ourselves. What is it I still am without understanding about with regards to my walk with the Lord. If I can identify it, then I can do something about it. Nothing to be ashamed of. All of us are deficient in many aspects of our spiritual lives because all of us are still works in progress. Uh, And so if the Lord wants to come to us and say, don't you understand, then the response is, well, Lord, explain it again to me uh, like I'm a two-year-old because that's kind of my mentality. After all, I am winsome. Verse 17, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, they defile a man. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were all about ritual hand washing, making you more spiritual. No matter how clean a person's hands were, either hygienically or ritually, what they put in their mouth with those hands was going to be digested and eliminated. Good hygiene will keep you healthier, 
but it has no effect on you spiritually whatsoever. Ritual cannot have any effect on you because the real you is who you are in your heart, meaning your mind, will, and emotions. The real you is revealed by, Jesus says, what comes out of your mouth. Now, obviously you can lie about what is in your heart and fool people. You can't always review a person's actual words and know what they are truly thinking or what they're really like. Jesus isn't talking, he's not giving a lesson in having better speech or having our speech seasons with grace or anything like that. The simple idea Jesus was communicating using this analogy is that physical rituals like hand washing cannot transform your already defiled heart. And if you want to see what's coming out of the heart of mankind, look around at the world. And he gives us a picture of it in verse 19. For out of the human heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. What you put in does not, it cannot defile you. You are already defiled. Now, maybe you haven't, for example, murdered anyone or committed adultery. Well, in fact, you have. If you've ever been angry at someone or ever looked upon someone with lust, Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, you've sinned and are guilty of murder and or adultery because you've already done it in your heart. And this is where God's commandments come in. They are how we discover we are defiled. The non-believer reads them and thereby understands that he or she has broken them. He or she will further see that since these are defilements that they are born with, no amount of reformation can help you have a better standing with God. Evangelist and author Ray Comfort has done a nice job of renewing our modern understanding that we can and should use God's law, especially the Ten Commandments, to show non-believers that they are sinners who deserve hell but can have heaven instead by trusting in Jesus Christ. A typical Ray Comfort track will start off by saying something like, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Most people do. However, most of us differ as to the definition of good. The Bible says that God is good and the Ten Commandments are his standard of goodness. And then he'll list uh, one or all ten of the Ten Commandments and he'll point out that Jesus said you must keep them in your heart or you've broken the Ten Commandments and then he goes for the kill and he says so you are a sinner before God with no hope of salvation. You know, I'm all for posting the Ten Commandments everywhere, uh, in courtrooms, in city halls, uh, wherever you want to post the Ten Commandments, I think it's great. Just remember, the Ten Commandments are to drive people to their knees in the understanding that they are hell-doomed sinners apart from the grace of God because by them we see that we sin uh, by nature, and so therefore no amount of reformation can help us. We need a new heart, a transformed heart. Let me tell you a personal anecdote. It's about my boyhood experiences in Roman Catholicism. I'm not accusing all Catholics of what I'm going to explain, but for me, it was how the traditions of men masked my defiled heart. When we were learning about going to confession in our catechism class, building up to First Holy Confession, uh, I asked if we would be forgiven all of our sins in confession, even if we forgot one or two of them at the last minute. 
My catechism teacher uh, told me, yes, you would be forgiven all of your sins by the absolution of the priest and uh, by your penance. When I went to confession, doggone it if I didn't forget a lot of my sins. I, I don't know where they went. I always chose a busy time to go to confession because the priest didn't ask much questions if there were a lot of, uh, you know, penitents. Uh, but I was okay because that was all covered by the priest's absolution and by my repetition of our fathers and Hail Marys. Now, the whole exercise was to me an outward ritual that masked the fact that it was from a defiled heart that my behavior sprung. I might have gone on thinking the ritual was going to save me in the end, and like billions of other people in all the religions of the world, woke up in Hades to await judgment for my sins. Jesus is also describing your heart and my heart right now as still being defiled. When I am born again, I receive God the Holy Spirit into my heart. I receive a new nature from God. I become a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. But I still have the flesh to contend with and I always will. If I yield my members to the flesh, I'm capable of all the horrors Jesus listed in this verse and many others as well. I cannot allow any traditions of men, even my own, to mask the sin that's in my heart. Sin doesn't need masking, it needs slaying. According to the book of Colossians, I am to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in me, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's a quote from Colossians 3, verse 5. That sentence was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. It wasn't an altar call for non-believers. It was a call to holiness for believers. It was a warning about the defilement that is still in the heart because we struggle against the flesh. Because we have died with Christ, Paul says in Colossians 3.3, we have the spiritual power to slay the earthly, fleshly desires that want to control us. In another passage, Paul called this reckoning ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Am I fooling myself about sin that I am harboring in my heart, thinking that by going to church or having devotions or serving the Lord, that sin is somehow covered? Now, we should do those things for their own sake, to further our walk with the Lord, but by doing them, I do nothing uh, to uh, change the defilement in my heart. And so if I'm toying with sin, if I'm playing with sin, if I'm managing sin, keeping sin on life support, you know, keeping it down, nobody knows about it, uh, it's never going to break forth, but I just don't really want to kill it because there's something about it that I enjoy, uh, then I am masking that with my other behaviors, thinking, hey, I'm okay over here, so, you know, uh, the good outweighs the bad. And, and the Lord comes, he says, no, you need to kill that. You, you can't mask sin, you have to murder sin and pursue holiness. Sin is always dealt with the same way, by putting it to death, I don't want to leave us there wallowing in our defiled hearts, and Jesus doesn't leave us there. He left heaven. He became a man. He took our place as our substitute. He died on the cross for our sins, and then he rose again so that we could have the power to live the Christian life. His sacrifice and subsequent resurrection gives me that power so I can say yes to God and no to sin. I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God. I can therefore yield my members, which is my body, to God and not to the flesh. My defiled heart need not defile me as I walk in the spirit and deny the flesh. 
Now, traditions by themselves are not evil. We all have family traditions, and it's okay to have church traditions. Traditions go bad when they mask the defilements of the heart, when they tell us that we are spiritual for doing something, even though what we are doing cannot possibly transform the heart. Any religion, any religion that, that is not biblical Christianity that is by grace through faith, that teaches any manner of masking of sin or if I do these things, then my sin will be covered. If there's anything I do, then I am just acting hypocritically, I'm lying to myself because everything was done by Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's by grace through faith in him that I have the power to say notice. It's not by any sacrament that I take one time or consistently throughout my life. It's not by any good works that I do. As I said earlier, it's not because I come to church or have devotions or try to live a spiritual life. Those are all separate things that can aid me in my walk with the Lord, but they cannot touch a defiled heart that needs transformation and they cannot deal with sin that needs to be killed. And so if there's anything in my life and in your life that we're trying to manage or to keep barely alive, unplug that thing and turn to the Lord.